This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Alex Svetsky, very good to have you back on uh, back on Talk Your Book. Been really looking forward to, to sitting down with you and, and having a chat. It's been a few months, but it feels like a few years since we uh, we last talked. So firstly, um, where are you in the world currently and uh, and how are you enjoying this meteoric rise in uh, in Bitcoin? Yeah, man, we're we're living in a time warp. Um, every every month feels like a new year. So, I guess to answer you a couple of questions there, uh, I am in Brazil at the moment. Um, so just hanging out, and enjoying some sunshine, and avoiding the madness of uh, of lockdowns. And I guess, am am I enjoying the Bitcoin thing? I I don't like I said beforehand is you know I don't really look at price these days anymore. I if if anything, it's kind of annoying because. I'm very much still in the accumulation stage. And these days, my shitty dollars are buying less and less Bitcoin. So it's actually annoying. Uh, I still remember when we were talking, like, you know, a hundred bucks would buy you. Um, I can't remember what it was. It was like, I think 200,000 sats. Now I'm buying like 50,000 sats. It's a, it's, it's, it's uh, not the greatest feeling, but hey, it's, um, if, if there's one thing I do feel really good about um, is I guess, Everyone who's consistently called me a maniac for the last couple of years is kind of eating their words now. So the joys of being a Bitcoiner. And how's Amber App going? I know you're the founder of that. How's that, how's that business running in, uh, in this bull cycle? Really good, man. So, so the business is doing much better. Um, we've had a you know, decent influx of users. I think Australia's got a, a bit of a, a gambling addiction. So I, I would say we're not growing as fast as what I would call the shitcoin casinos. You know, people sort of have this tendency to want to find the next Bitcoin and sort of gamble their way into prosperity in some way, shape or form. So, you know, and they, they've got this sort of unit bias and, and what they fail to do is understand the difference between Bitcoin, the, the problem that Bitcoin is solving, which is the demonopolization of money. Um, and, you know, the, the, the reintroduction of the money that sort of maps directly to what it's supposed to map to, which is, you know, the human time and energy, you know, capital. Like, so, so that's what Bitcoin fixes, which is a huge problem. And all these other shit coins and tokens are effectively, um, you know, just interesting ways for people to gamble. Um, and, you know, like there, there's, there's a lot of conflation in the two things. And um, so, yeah, we're doing great. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that we're actually helping people build long-term wealth like that's the whole point of amber and um and i hope that you know these people who are building up their personal savings like they're, they're treating it as a sort of a micro version of what uh michael saylor is doing with micro strategy you know he's put his balance sheet into bitcoin you know so people need to start moving their own personal balance sheet into bitcoin so i'm glad that amber can be a part of that well that's a, a great segue so we're going to get into it in terms of today we thought we'd you know, last last time we spoke was a bit of an introduction to Bitcoin for, for a lot of viewers and, and listeners of this show. I think today it'd be useful to maybe work through some of the, the stories or some of the roadblocks out there that are precluding people from taking that leap into Bitcoin or for people that are currently holding it. Some of the stories that are, are creating that fear in their guts around being able to hold it through. Well, it's always a, a, a volatile asset class when you measure it, when you measure it against dollars. So I think the, the biggest story... Uh, being perpetuated currently or, or that exists at the minute is India banning Bitcoin. 
Uh, maybe mm -hmm. talk through to the uh, to the listeners what's happened there and and how you're feeling about that. To be honest, I didn't even know about it until so I was just quickly pulling it up on Twitter. This is how much I couldn't care less about what governments are doing. But I mean, India's banned it like I think two or three times now. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 one of those things. It's like India turning around and saying we're going to ban um, the internet. And it's like all they've done is lock themselves out of the house. You know, it's it's kind of you you can't ban Bitcoin. All you do is you lock yourself out mm. of um, you, you and your citizens out of the potential for creating economic prosperity. So it's like they're shooting themselves in the foot. And, and you know what's funny? India did this by adopting the silver standard a couple hundred years ago when the whole world converged on the gold standard, and they bankrupted themselves in the process um, because gold is harder money than silver. And here we are again, doing the same thing over and over again, because, you know, it, it, it pays, if you're in government, it pays for you to issue your own currency, because in doing so, you create your own mini cancel on effect, you enrich yourself, you know, at the expense of someone else. And, and game theoretically, it actually makes sense to continue to do that. Like, why would you, you know, want to even the playing field when you've got an advantage? Like, so, so. You know, they, they don't want something like Bitcoin, but unbeknownst to them is just like what happened last time with um, with the price of Bitcoin in India. You know, there was a 10, 20, 30% premium for the price of Bitcoin in India last time they banned it. Here they are again, banning it again. There'll be a premium in, you know, the price in India. Still get it. You know, like, I mean, the, the, the greatest military power on the planet has been trying to stop cannabis <laughs> and they had no chance for the last 50 60 70 years like they've tried to stop the war on drugs the war on alcohol the war on this the war on that if they think they're gonna win a war on monetary information good luck you know they're just gonna bankrupt themselves in the process and i think that would be one of the some of the people watching would be you know interested in india's decision more concerned should america take that leap and and come to the same conclusion but i think like you touched on the risk of doing that at a time when tech, um, you know, looks to be the, the, the future of, of all economies uh, and potentially isolating that group of people in the tech industry and potentially losing, potentially losing them to a different country, um, it would be an incredible risk if America followed suit and potentially lost all that talent to another country or potentially a country with, with um, you know, different motivations at heart. Yeah, but even like... I think the America one is even more um, unfounded because the, America, the, the states have far more power in America than what um, the regions in India do. So, so India is a far more centrally planned, centrally controlled yeah, economy. Okay. So they can sort of do that from the central bank. Whereas, I mean, at the moment, you've got the mayor of Miami. They're yeah. putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Like this, the game theory is way too sticky at the moment. And, and you've got major corporations putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. You've got you know, people like BlackRock, et cetera, who yeah. have direct stakes in these things, there's way too much skin in the game. There's, there's senators, for, for the love of Christ, who are full-on Bitcoiners. So the, the, this isn't, the cat's out of the bag. It's too, it's too late for them to sort of extricate out of this. And what, what happens, it's funny, I just finished the book um, today called the When Money Dies, uh, and it's a, it's a historical expose on Weimar Republic Germany. And it just goes to show how, I mean, History may not repeat, but it for damn sure rhymes. Like we are doing the Weimar Republic dance uh, on a global scale at the moment. And one of the interesting things during the whole Weimar Republic thing was whilst, you know, the, the officials and the government and everything were trying to ban people from, you know, hoarding uh, foreign currencies and gold and this and that, 
they were doing it themselves. You know what I mean? So it's, it's so messy that they, they couldn't, there's no way to stop that. And particularly with something like a money that is now, you know, comes in the form of information. Like how are you going to stop that? Mm. It, it's, it's no physical piece that you can sort of point a gun at someone's head. It's impossible. So they're like, Bitcoin's already won. The, the only thing is who of the, um, whether it's, uh, you know, municipalities or states, who adopts some Bitcoin on the balance sheet and when? That's the only question. Um, it's, and, and in, what, in what order will the dominoes fall? That's the only thing here. And you've seen that the advantage of companies that have been early adopters that have, have lived through that that game theory you speak of, you know, micro strategies, got a huge position now in Bitcoin. I think Elon Musk is up over a billion dollars in his Bitcoin position already. The incentive for the first central bank to take Bitcoin or, or use Bitcoin as part of their reserve asset mix is incredibly high, isn't it? Because the first one that does it is going to benefit by far the most. Well, remember what we spoke about last time where I said the, you know, a couple of years ago, the the risk, you know, your reputational risk was to get involved in Bitcoin. You know, mm. it's like, are you crazy? What the hell would you do with that thing? And, and you know, we sort of discussed how now, like the reputational risk is, what are you an idiot? Do you not have it, you know, as part of one of the assets? And, and all that's happening now is, you know, that first thing was, you know, for individuals, then sort of high net worth people, then, you know, instos now, you know, corporates that are publicly listed. Mm. I mean, it, it's just a progression mm. and, and it's just, it's just an order of magnitude larger. So at some point, it, it, what'll be really interesting is I think the last probably to do something about it will probably the ones that can issue their own money directly. So I, I would venture to say, and this is where the U S is a really interesting scenario. And that, that Miami example is really interesting mm. is that, They've got their own budgets. They've got their own um, state level taxes. They've got their own treasury balances that sit outside of just what the central bank, you know, in the in the larger country prints. And they're going to, you know, want to um, protect it outside of what just um, what benefit they get from inflation. So, so it's a it's a really interesting thing. Like I, I don't, I'm I'm not arrogant enough or stupid enough to believe that I know what path it's going to take. But, you know, the, the, the complexity of this game theory and just the, what I like to call the, the sheer force of economic Darwinism, like to, to, to subsist, you're not going to be an idiot and store your municipality, your state, your government's wealth in salt or toilet paper. And, mm. and the more that these uh, traditional fiat currencies uh, lose the very thing that gives them any semblance of um, perceived value, which is trust in the state, the more that diminishes, the, the less and less people are going to want to hold that crap. And the more and more they're going to look for some form of money to represent the product of their labor. And, you know, Bitcoin stands not head and shoulders above the rest, but it's in a different galaxy than everything mm. else. I think the US already has 70,000 Bitcoin on their balance sheet from, from confiscation. Silk so. Road? Yeah, yeah, probably. So, I'm, I'm pretty um, sure Bulgaria has like 200,000 as well and they haven't sold it. So, so you know, there, there, there's, there's Bitcoin around. I, I'm sure of it. I'm absolutely yeah. sure of it. Now, the, the next thing I thought would be interesting to discuss with you is the, um, you know, the, the real Bitcoin maxis talk about decentralisation as, as the holy grail of, of what they're chasing. Um, a world where 
you know, the power in government is, is, is almost completely revoked if you listen to some people talking. That world already exists in, in certain parts, um, you know, certain parts of Africa, a complete decentralisation where the government does have no control and, and the rule of law barely exists. And from where I sit, that looks like a fucking horrible place to live. Um, <laughs> how are you feeling about that? Uh, do you, in your, in your view of, of, of what Nirvana looks like, what the holy grail of this looks like in 10, 20, 30 years' time, is it a, a world where certainly government still exists but it's a small government with, with less power and central planning capacity than they currently have? Or do you have this view where there is complete decentralisation and big angry guys are walking around bashing everyone? You know, the, what I think you're talking about there is like the law of the jungle. Um, you know, that, the, the, the way the law of the jungle functions in Africa is actually a function of a lot more variables. So, so the, the, there's reasons why the West emerged as, you know, an economic powerhouse, which is, you know, they sort of early on recognized, you know, through enlightenment values, you know, the, the importance of the individual and all this sort of stuff that sort of goes back to the Renaissance and, you, you know, allowing the individual to be free enough to innovate and, you know, allowing the merchant class to rise and sort of structuring society around scientific principles and things like that. And what that did was that actually built wealth now, government was a byproduct of the creation of wealth and the rise of the merchant class. It wasn't the other way around. What you know, we what we see in Africa is actually a an absence of a lot of that that occurred in the West um, in the first. So you know, Africa lacks a lot of that base foundation in order for you know these things like rule of law, etc., to emerge. So so when 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 Bitcoin Maxis talk about um, a world with uh, little to no government, they're not talking about um, Africa, what they're talking about is a far more fragmented, decentralized and localized uh, type of existence in which the, the communities or the cities or whatever we sort of live in, they're not run by bankrupt institutions. And when I say bankrupt institutions, I mean governments in the form that they exist today. Like governments today don't run they, they don't have their house in order. They waste money on all the wrong things. They're spending time, money, and energy bombing other people, getting into everyone else's business, fucking, you know, telling businesses, you know, what to do, when to do it, how to do it, when they should open, all this. Like, all of this waste is, you know, uh, possible because the government has the monopoly on stealing half of your wealth or more these days through taxation. And then... Uh, diluting the balance of it by printing money and then you have you basically got no say in it now I, I call that the um the the subject overlord relationship is it's it's kind of like going into a shop um and wanting to buy something um and first you're punched in the face um they take your wallet they take out 75 percent of the money they tell you what you're going to buy and if you don't like it you get thrown out the back um, with nothing, right? So it's kind of, that that's the sort of relationship we've got with government at the moment. And that is, again, only possible because they have the monopoly on the production of money and the monopoly on the, the, the force of extracting the money from you. Whereas in a Bitcoin type world, what you end up doing is you change the dynamics more to a customer service provider relationship. Mm -hmm. And th there's a guy I should probably intro you to him. He, he should, you should definitely get him on your show. His, his name is Titus Giebel. He's a He's an entrepreneur. He, he did really well in mining over the last 20 years. And what he's now doing is he's building private cities. And these private cities, the, the, the whole premise of it is that 
you have a contractual relationship with the city mm. to provide you, you, you pay like a membership fee almost to have the basic services, which is, you know, say policing, you know, defense, blah, blah, blah. And you, you have a customer service provider relationship, which is if you don't like it, you leave mm. um, and, and you go somewhere else. So this, this kind of world is only possible when the person who is supposedly governing is not able to continually grow their empire and stay in power through the capacity to print money. They can keep themselves in business. Like imagine if you and I were able to run a completely bankrupt fucking business mm. and just keep printing money out the back, but selling people shit that they don't like, it, it doesn't work. Like nowhere else on the planet can you run something that doesn't work, which your customers don't like, but you force it on them other than government and the way nation states function today. So in a Bitcoin world, what you get is, and this is the most important thing is you get competition Yeah. and you get competition, which can't be cheated. And that is really, really important. And what competition does is it drives innovation. It drives prosperity, drives um, more functionality. And those regions that function like Africa without the base, um, you know, uh, values, without um, understanding private property rights, without all of that, they will continue to be fucking poor because mm. what they do is they destroy their own capital. Whereas regions that want to build on top of that stuff, they will. And then you'll have this um, uh, competitive force, almost Darwinian in nature, that drives different jurisdictions to be better because they're going to be like, well, fuck, these guys are doing something different. Maybe we should copy them. Um, you know, And th this is where things like defense and everything else become important. But th there's, there's a whole slew of things there. So does that kind of answer it? It does. So, I mean, I think, I think interpreting it from my end, it, it's this world that, that Bitcoin maxis sometimes speak of isn't a world where violence is, is no longer reserved for the, no. the state or the military or, or people who are in self-defence. It, it's not that world at all. It's really a world where when you look at Europe where over 50% of the economy now belongs to the government, it's taking that control back, reducing the size sure. of the government, but, but a, a world where policing, schooling, healthcare is still provided by the government but not an economy not, that's completely centrally planned. Not really. You don't even need policing and schooling to be provided by the, especially not schooling. Schooling, government schooling, I think is the worst idea ever. Like I think private schooling is the best idea because like if I, if I was a parent and I have a kid, what I would do is I would look for an a la carte kind of menu. I would look for a specialist school that does, for example, language specialist school that does math specialist school that does science. And I would pay for those things on an a la carte basis because I want to, not because I have been, forcefully taxed and then have my kid shoehorned into some sort of 12-year program that beats the individuality out of them and then spits them out on the other end expecting them to add value to the world but that, that shit doesn't work so like government schooling i think is an extraordinarily bad idea i think paying for the kind of schooling that you want is absolutely you know then the solutions that the free market would provide for things like that is you know potentially insurance which is you know you pay into a kitty of insurance um, and then there might be institutions that provide, you know, like full base level, you know, education for people that want to use that as a low cost version where, you know, uh, resources are pooled as opposed to it being forcefully taxed from you and then uh, allocated by government who we know are the worst allocators of capital possible. Like there is no worse allocator of capital than a bureaucrat. Like because they, they, they don't what, what they lack is the capacity for the free market to tell them when and where they were wrong because they can just get money from one side, pour it into this, 
they can fuck it all up and then there's no consequence. So then what do they do? They take more money and they fuck more things up. Whereas in a free market, that sort of stuff gets corrected. Um, so, so, so I don't think necessarily governments need to provide that, but what will happen is um, you, you get service providers that will provide that and compete in providing a better version of that service. In a hyper-inflated Bitcoin world, I can see how that works for anyone with Bitcoin. But if you've got a whole group of people that aren't on board and Bitcoin's now at $3 million, they're not going to have the funds for a bespoke education system or you know, picking the best doctor to provide for their kids, yet there's still human needs that are going to need to be need to be attended to. Um, yeah, there, there, there will be. So, so what they'll have the opportunity to do for the first time ever is they'll be able to actually rise up. The problem with poverty is this is what people misunderstand about poverty. Poverty is not a function of, um, you know, the, 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 the redistribution of wealth. Poverty is a function actually of um, poor capital utilization and corruption. That, that's purely it. So, so the reason some people who are on the bottom rung of the world, the reason they can't climb is because every time they take a step on the bottom rung, the rug gets pulled from under them and the money that they've earned evaporates. Like if you're in Venezuela today and you go work for a week, by the time you finish working at the end of the week, you have less money than what you started with. So you actually can't get ahead. Whereas in a Bitcoin world, you can find meaningful work. You can actually save. Like savings is the, the cornerstone of civilization. You can't have that. And you can't actually climb without being able to save. So, so Bitcoin doesn't leave anyone behind. It actually enables everybody to start moving up without having without being stuck down there and being kept down there. That's the, the current system actually keeps people down there. The bulls will also speak of that without the constant money printing, the deflation we should be seeing in everyday prices that tech has yes. had, we would actually see it and you wouldn't need as much money to buy everyday services. 100%. We'd see the deflationary effects of tech, which we're not currently seeing. Absolutely. That's actually a huge point is all capitalism, all progress is deflationary in nature. Like what we do as human beings is actually deflationary in nature. What we do is we find better ways to do things. We find better ways to put things together, to produce stuff, to make stuff, better ways to provide a service. That, that, is, the, that is the Darwinian uh, you know, forcing function of innovation. And that is deflationary in nature. When you do something better and you can provide it to more people, you actually lower the cost. So that's, that's what competition does. As soon as we create monopolies, we destroy the capacity of the competition and we sort of move in the other direction. And the problem is that once you empower somebody with enough of a monopoly, they sort of, it's, it's like a drug to get hooked on. You know, there's their solution to all the problems is to have more of a monopoly. Okay, let's, let's nationalize this and let's nationalize this. And they continue to clusterfuck everything because they don't have the free market inputs to help correct the decision-making process. They can just, they've got an unlimited well of money that they think they can draw from but all they're doing is they're taxing us in three ways. They tax us today with normal taxes. They invisibly tax us with inflation. And they tax future selves and our future family by borrowing from a future that they're fucking making worse. So, so it's really, 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 really dumb. And, and it doesn't help anyone. It, it, it actually creates the, the, the unnatural inequality we're seeing today. And in a way, the, the internet was going to be the great saviour to some of these things. It was going to be free information flow amongst people. Uh, all across the world and it, what that's slowly turning into is centralization but instead of being in governments via you know four or five enormous corporate corporations that are now controlling information flow do you feel that that sort of holy grail of what the internet promised to be you know in the early 90s do you think this movement towards more decentralization could 
could turn that into the, the project that everyone hopes or a lot of people hoped it would have been originally? I'm actually writing a piece on this called um, the, the Rise of the Technocratic Leviathan, basically. So, so what I think has happened here is the, 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 you can actually draw this back to the constant monetary inflation as well, um, is the, the way the current system functions is that, you know, money is created out of thin air. So it doesn't map back to time and energy, like we said. Now, you and I, as normal citizen A and B, we have to go out and work, provide some sort of value into the marketplace in order to earn this unit we call money in order to measure how much value we've actually input, right? Whereas if you're a government um, or some form of institution that's close to the monetary spigot, you don't have to do that. You just have to create uh, money out of thin air. And where that money initially goes is it goes to all your friends and cronies first. So sort of it, it seeps into the economy in layers. But because it goes to your sort of banking friends and everything first, and this is why about 10, 15 years ago, a lot of the traditional banks turned into investment banks in America because they saw that that's where all the money is, is they get the money first. And then what do they do? Is they then pour all that money into the public stock market. Um, so, so they, and, and where do they pour it? They pour it primarily into the companies in the Dow Jones, the, you know, the top NASDAQ companies, et cetera. And if you're a company like an Amazon or a Facebook or a Google that is already doing things way better, what you end up doing is you, you uh, amass a disproportionate amount of the money that is basically coming from the top. And you all of a sudden have you are turbocharged more than what you would naturally be turbocharged as an entity. And then that creates these oligopolies that sit around the monopoly that then get to create rules like, you know, they can have uh, lobbying power, they can have, um, you know, the, the ability to push legislation in different directions, they can keep out other competitors, they can buy small competitors when they're small because they're so overcapitalized. So what you get is this sort of this unnatural monopolization of players that are really close to the monetary spigot. That can't happen in a competitive marketplace because what happens in a competitive marketplace where somebody can't have an unfair advantage is the little guy starts to eat away at the large guy. And, you know, you, you, don't, you don't have like, you don't see anywhere else in nature, one species dominating the rest, except for us fools who've managed to sort of build these institution, these monopolistic sort of behemoths that are, um, that are state the, the, what we know as the state and that has now given rise to these technocratic almost monopolies and I, it's almost like a Faustian bargain is these governments have kind of done this they've done it to themselves and now they're facing an existential threat which is these you know the Googles and the Facebooks and everything of the world are more powerful than most nation states are today <laughs> so it's a really weird situation and that has all sort of stems from this this misallocation of capital um, which is generally, which is being created at one end, but it, because the system is closed, as it gets created on one side, it actually gets leached from the other. So, so we're basically paying for it in a, in a really convoluted, fucked up way. And it's, um, it's unfortunate. But to, to your original point, I don't think the move to decentralization actually fixes this. I think what fixes a lot of this is Bitcoin breaking the capacity for anybody to play an unfair game. And in doing so, what you start to do is these, these institutions, these corporations, all this stuff starts to normalize because we can encourage natural competition again. And natural competition is what drives things better, makes them better, and it actually destroys unnatural monopolies. So you don't see a world where there'll be early movies in Bitcoin that you know, may end up with a wealth 
it's just astronomical. You don't see them then having that same leverage over their local government who are now competing, now competing for those guys to be living in the municipality than what the tech giants currently have. Absolutely not, because what happens is you can't stay there unless you're making good decisions. That's the difference. So you might have that sort of pool, that sort of leverage, and you might go and build your own city and you say, fuck it, these are my rules. If you don't like my rules, fuck you. Um, And you might have really bad rules. But what happens is everyone's going to fuck off out of there and go somewhere else. And all of a sudden you're bankrupting yourself. So, So now for the first time is Bitcoin actually creates downward movement and upward movement in society. It enables both of them. Whereas at the moment, if you're close enough to the monetary speaker, you don't have any downward movement. And if you're if you're towards the bottom, you don't you can't fucking rise up. And then what ends up happening is the middle class, those of us in the middle, we pay for both of them, which is really messed up. Whereas in Bitcoin, it creates what Nassim Taleb would call um, ergodic, or, or an easier way to think about that is dynamic in nature, which means we can move up and down the thing. So bad decisions will push you down. So, so people who are large scale Bitcoin holders, I guarantee you a lot of them are going to make bad fucking decisions. That Bitcoin is going to recirculate and it's going to go into the hands of people who make better decisions. Furthermore, and this is the really interesting part is generationally speaking, um, when how many people do we know? And I can give you so many, but do we know that came from nothing and built something from nothing versus how many people do we know that were born into a rich family and all they did was become degenerates or junkies or all that sort of stuff, right? So you look at you know, a couple of the richest men today or the people who've created the biggest companies. Musk came from nothing. Bezos came from nothing. Jobs came from nothing. Like all of these people, they built something from nothing. Um, whereas you've got all these, you know, like, the, the, the kids of IBM or whatever, they're just sort of trust fund babies who they, they don't have to do anything, but they sort of benefit from the Cantillon effect of being close enough to all of that excess capital flowing into public stocks. And they, they, they don't have to add more value. Whereas in a Bitcoin world, if you know I was a really good Bitcoiner, for example, and built some generational wealth, passed it on to my kids, and my kids turned out to be little entitled brats who just burnt it all on you know Coke hookers and Lamborghinis, well, shit, that Bitcoin's gone. And there's no way for me to like sit here and print it to, to at the disadvantage of anyone else. And that's what's beautiful about that. So I have no concern about people who got in early. Some of them might be assholes, but they will only be assholes to their own detriment because they're going to either burn their money or they're going to burn their customers, one of the two. Now, talk to me about uh, energy usage. I think that's probably the last thing I really wanted to walk through because yeah, it yeah. feels like there's some... On a bit of a wall path with Bitcoin around the energy usage and the fact that Bitcoin mining now uses, I think, more energy than the whole of Pakistan. Um, talk to me how you're feeling about that issue and, and what the fallout or, or, or future may look like in, in that regard. Well, the, the, I always like to tackle this in two ways. Um, let, let's use the US dollar as an example first. So, you know, a lot of people say, you know, the, the trust in the US dollar comes from the trust in their military, right? They, you know, they've got the might um, and they know what to do. Someone did an s- awesome study on this. Do you know how much energy, um, what the energy equivalence of the US military is on a global scale? No. Something like 126 countries. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's what it costs to maintain the US dollar. That's not counting MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, all of that infrastructure. So if you want to think about like what the energy cost is of holding together the traditional financial system 
and you know the the inefficiencies between the US dollar and the euro and the Aussie dollar and all these different fucked up you know printed like the amount of energy humanity is wasting on this this duct tape and you know plastic pipe work of a financial system that we've got today is abhorrent is abhorrent like it, it is so many orders of magnitude greater than what bitcoin's using to give us a pure clean 24/7 accessible open public money you know to, to sort of you know like it's it's out of this world so, so that's one thing i would argue is, you know people sort of who are angry at bitcoin you know go knock on your senator's you know door or go knock on um, you know Scomo's door or something like that and ask how much energy is going to hold together the Aussie dollar and and how many people are you know getting bombed in Syria and Yemen and all that sort of stuff to maintain all of this stuff so so that would be the first thing I would say then secondarily um, when something is trending upwards in terms of energy usage what that shows you is that there is uh, value there um, meaning that you live in a house, I assume. I assume you don't live in a cardboard box, right? Yes, living in a house. Right. So, you know, living in a house uses more energy than living in a cardboard box, um, fundamentally. And that's because you value having lighting, having stove, having, you know, ele- you know, electricity and a TV and all this sort of stuff. So, so when you go out and use energy, like you, you value it. So what the world is showing us is that as Bitcoin uh, grows in size and as Bitcoin grows in importance, the market is telling us that this is an important innovation, that having a money that nobody can corrupt, that nobody can co-opt, that nobody can print, that nobody can lord over somebody else is valuable. So the market is willing to allocate energy towards that as a use case. Now, the third piece I'll throw in there is Bitcoin's natural tendency, because it is like the closest way to convert energy into money, like there's nothing closer. Like when we think about the work we do, which is using our energy to, to you know, get paid in a unit of money, the, the, the energetic loss along the way between the work we do, the, the, the money we're giving, what needs to be printed, the institutions that need to guarantee it, you know, the, the military industrial complex or whatever that needs to support, like all of that shit is very wasteful. Whereas Bitcoin is sort of computation on one side and a monetary unit on the other. There is no wastage in the middle. It is the most efficient way to produce, you know, a guarantee for for money, a, ga- a guarantee for a monetary system. And because of that, because of its um, drive for inefficiency, what it also does is it incentivizes those who want to be validators on the network, also known as miners, to go and source energy from places that are either untapped or unused or inadequately, um, you know, sourced and, and, and ideally also from renewables at some stage, but renewables are a little bit of a, a red herring, I think, is they, um, you know, like the average windmill, I think it costs about 20 years worth of, uh, you know, energy output to, earn back what it actually costs to put the goddamn uh, windmill together in the first place, which is a bit fucking stupid, right? It's like, let's burn up all of our resources now for something in the future. But anyway, that, that's another discussion. But, you know, the I, I know a couple of people now in America, what they're doing is they're going to sites where gas was being flashed, um, where, and for, for those that don't know what that means, is basically uh, nat- natural gas places and fracking places that are, you know, extracting gas from the ground 
when, when the pressure is too high, they have to actually release the excess gas and waste it. It's sort of going out into the environment and what a fucking waste of energy. So what these guys are doing, they're putting uh, turbines where that flashing occurs and the, the, they're taking that excess energy and they're using that to power the miners. It's brilliant. Talk about taking, you know, th that's the kind of stuff that th this is sort of when you allow the free market to go and solve a problem, that's what happens. When you put a bunch of bureaucrats in charge of solving a problem, they, you know, put a few sparse windmills and everyone freezes to death in Texas, you know? So, so that's sort of the difference between how, you know, energy and resources are allocated in a free market versus bureaucratic. So I don't think the energy one is like, first of all, I always ask compared to what? And, you know, that sort of trumps it. And secondly is, you know, ask people what, what does increasing energy, what does a trend of increasing energy usage actually mean? It means that someone values this. Um, and then number three is because of Bitcoin's, uh, forcing function to uh, use the the most um, energy, it's going to suck up all of that wasted energy first. And that is extremely good for the environment, extremely good for the planet. Particularly if a lot of those stranded assets are, are far away from where people live and by effectively transporting that electricity, yeah, yeah. you lose yeah. the electricity or a big chunk of it in any case. So yeah, it's um, in some ways it's a more efficient process of monetizing energy than, than could be done otherwise. It's way more efficient. Like what Bitcoin, what I love about Bitcoin is it eliminates wastage on so many levels. It eliminates wastage at the government level, eliminates wastage at the corporate level, eliminates wastage at the energy transmission level. It eliminates wastage all across, you know, the different stratas of the world. And this is where like, I know the whole Bitcoin fixes this thing sounds trite, but, but it actually does fix a lot of things. And the, what happens then is the second, third and subsequent order effects, they start to sort of channel in a direction, which you know, again, it's not some utopian panacea. Like I wrote a piece a little while ago called Libertarians Aren't Utopians. It's not that we're going to live in like peace and prosperity and we're all one shit. There's always going to be conflict. You know, human beings always disagree with each other and that's fine. But what it does is it, it fixes the incentives so that if you're a dick, you pay the price. And if you're good and you add value, you benefit. Simple as that. Like th that's what Bitcoin does. And that's why Bitcoin fixes so many things. And now I will let you go in a minute. But I think the last thing I wanted to touch on is I still can see a world where Bitcoin plays a role as a reserve asset, be it in central banks, uh, we're already seeing mm -hmm. it with corporates, individuals. I can't see it replacing currencies across different countries. Um, but I, it sounds like you could see a world where it does not only serve as a reserve asset, but also replaces uh, currencies issued by different governments. Am I right in that? Yeah, I think it's, it just depends on your timescale, man. That's all. Yeah. So, so maybe in the next 10, 15 years, you know, we might see it more as, you know, treated as this reserve asset like gold. And then, you know, people are issuing currency, you know, their own currencies against it and say, we're this much back in Bitcoin. But at some point, like, why would you need to do that when, you know, you've got sort of second layers like lightning and all sorts of stuff being built on Bitcoin, which, I mean, it's much more efficient for me to send you some sats around the world than have to, you know, draw against my Bitcoin, convert it to dollars, send it with transfer wise, pay a bunch of fees. And then that person like, it's, it's a bit of a, you know, kind of like trying to put a carriage, you know, or trying to put a horse in front of a car, you know what I mean? So let's, let's drag the car with the horse because that's how it should be. So, so I think in the short term, yes, because you know, there, there's, again, let's think theoretically is if you're a nation state, you know, you're going to want to say, look, we can provide X, Y, Z, whatever guarantees you want to provide. Um, and, you know, to, to, to remain relevant, we're going to put Bitcoin on our balance sheet because we know that that's the responsible thing to do and that's going to bolster our currency, but we're still going to issue our own. So, so they're going to try and like 
maintain relevancy in some way, shape, or form. But at some point, again, just the competitive nature of Bitcoin, when it's when it's um, when it's mature enough, such that you know you don't have these 20 percent swings daily, you know, in terms of purchasing power and in terms of its relative rate against fiat currencies, um, you know, and and its its purchasing power is relatively stable. Like it, it, like what I love about Bitcoin is its aggregate purchasing power will actually increase with the aggregate increase of productivity of humanity as a whole, right? Like at, in, in some future stage. But coming back from that is, as that happens, the incentive to want to swap to a fiat just to, to do stuff starts to diminish. The person on the other end is just going to say, well, fuck it, look, I'll, you know, we, we have a Bitcoin-based, we have a Bitcoin-backed fiat currency here. You have a Bitcoin-backed fiat currency there. It's like, why don't we just move the thing in the middle and just send me some fucking Bitcoin? And that's what's going to happen. But it's it's kind of like I, I laugh at the whole situation. It's like I, I envision bureaucrats in the state kind of as this institution. Like they, they've got a they've got a broom and there's a wave coming and they're like sort of trying to like push the ocean back with a broom. Like it's good luck. It ain't going to happen. So I, I think you're you're correct in a shorter time frame, but I think on a long enough time scale, that stuff starts to fall away. Well, it feels like as good a place as any to uh, to finish up there, mate. Just don't forget when you create Bitcoin Island and you get a call from your bald unemployed mate in Australia saying he wants to come for a holiday. Just just make sure you get me access for a for a couple of weeks. No worries, man. It'll be um, all membership based, so you can come <laughs> pay in sats. You'll be sweet. But look, t- t- you know, jokes aside, I think places like that are going to pop up all over the place, man. It'll be an interesting ten years, honestly. Like this, this decade, as much as there's some you know crazy shit going on, I think this is going to be the most extraordinary decade of, um, you know, I guess transformation from a digital, but also from a social standpoint. Like there's going to be interesting stuff as we as we as Bitcoin sort of helps us eliminate all this excess wastage from you know, society on multiple strata, like, man, it'll unlock innovation. It'll unlock thinking. It'll unlock, you know, new ways of doing stuff. It's it's going to be wild. So, yeah, I, whether it's my place or whatever other crazy Bitcoiners have put together a little city, you'll, uh, <laughs> you'll be welcome, my man. Thanks, man. Thanks for the chat, brother. Speak soon. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.